rockets, lasers, and the mystery of moon dust. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. When it comes to how dirt on the moon behaves, scientists are still in the dark. Moon sand, also called regolith, is pretty mysterious, but one team of University of Central Florida scientists want to shed some light on lunar dust clouds by shooting lasers at it. Understanding how dust behaves on the moon and other planetary surfaces is critical for future space exploration missions. For instance, exhaust from a spacecraft's landing engine could kick up razor-sharp moon dust that could damage instruments or obscure the view of landing. A team led by scientists Addie Dove and Phil Metzger is developing a sensor that can measure how these dust particles interact with rocket exhaust, a study that garnered the interest of NASA. Metzger and Dove's Ejecta Storm hardware received funding from NASA, and recently Metzger traveled to the Mojave Desert to test it out on a rocket which kicked up that simulated dust. UCF's Phil Metzger and Addie Dove join us now to talk about the experiment and why they hope to learn about moon dust. Phil, Addie, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, well, first, Phil, maybe you can just give us the rundown. Um, what was kind of the goal of this experiment? What were you, what were you trying to accomplish? We're, we're working on an instrument that'll go onto a lunar lander to measure the blast effects when you're landing on the moon, the rocket exhaust blowing out into a vacuum of space, picks up lunar dust and sand and gravel and rocks and blows it at really high speed, long distances. And that can damage other hardware on the moon. And that has a lot of implications. Like how do you design a, an architecture of a lunar outpost or how do you work next to the operations of another country on the moon without damaging each other's hardware. So Addie and I have been working on this hardware that will measure these blast effects so that we can start to figure out how to mitigate it. Addie, I know you and I have talked about your research and how dust interacts in in these different uh, gravitational environments. What do we know um, about lunar dust and what kind of holes are you trying to to fill with with this research? (laughs) We know some things about lunar dust, right? So we know it's really complicated, unfortunately. So it's more complicated than like sand here on Earth, which is also in itself super complicated. And we know a lot about its composition. We know some about the particle sizes and the particle size distributions. We know from core samples from Apollo, a little bit about how it's sort of distributed on the surface and a little bit in the subsurface. And we know, um, Phil mentioned blast effects. We know that when we land on the surface, Uh, lunar dust moves, the surface is changed, we can see that, but we don't have a great characterization of what's actually happening as it's going on, right? So we don't, the moon is a very different environment than exploring rocket uh, effects here on Earth. And so understanding how things work in the vacuum, uh, interacting with the charged uh, exhaust of of the rocket engines, all becomes really, really, this really complex fluid and plasma and charged particle motion problem that we don't have great answers to so far. Hey, Phil, Addie mentioned that that lunar dust is or lunar dirt is complicated. Why is that? Uh, what what do we what do we know about it? When you say it's complicated, what does that mean? Well, yeah, it, it really is very complicated. And as she mentioned, even ordinary sand is difficult to explain from a physics perspective. It's and that's ironic. I, uh, sand is arguably one of the two earliest materials humanity has ever worked with, the other one being water. And, uh, you know, we've been digging holes in the ground and making making berms to hide behind since prehistory, right? 
But in physics, we can't write equations that will describe how sand behaves. If you want to if you want to make a, a sand pile, when is the pile too steep and, and it starts to collapse? We, we can't explain that in physics. And the reason why is because unlike most materials, sand has a, an intermediate length scale, the mesoscale. There's a micro scale, that's where the molecules are. And there's the macro scale, that's where you see the big pile of sand. But the mesoscale is the level of the individual grains that can rearrange and move relative to each other. And because these grains are not simple like molecules, they're, they're not symmetric, every sand grain is unique, they, have, they can break, they have uh, sharp edges, rounded pieces, oblong shapes, and they can rotate and vibrate and, and do all kinds of weird stuff. That introduces a whole range of phenomena in granular physics that don't exist in other parts of physics. And we've never yet been able to solve the equations to predict those behaviors. Now, we have thousands of years of experience, 10,000 years since civilization started here on the earth, uh, working with sand but we have very little experience working with the types of sand that develop on an airless body in a low gravity environment in space where the space weathering has given unique characteristics to those grains. And um, Addie could tell you uh, some of the, the weird properties that these dust grains have because of the space weathering environment. Yeah, Addie, what, what, uh, what does make them so unique? At, at the basic level, it's their shape. So Phil mentioned that sand can have all these different shapes, but one of the really um, intense things about lunar regolith or lunar dust is that it's broken up bits of rock, right? That are really, they can be really sharp and jagged. And you also have weird agglomerations of things that are different sizes all mixed together. Um, and that's because you think of sand, it gets processed by waves and by the wind. And, and so it rolls and it gets smoothed out a little bit. But on the moon, there's none of that. Um, this is true on asteroids, too. So you get really jagged, weird shapes um, of, of these materials. You also get really interesting um, compositions because, uh, again, it's this broken up bits of rock, but it's not exposed to an oxygen environment like here on Earth. And so sometimes the compositions are different and they can have a lot different what's called surface energy. So sort of the interaction energy on the surface. Um, and then because it's in vacuum and because it's in space, particles will charge up. So sort of the, the way to, this is called electrostatics, right? So thinking about the charges on things. So one of the sort of easy ways to think about that is when you rub a balloon on your head and it sticks or it makes your hair stick up, right? That's electrostatics. Or when you like are walking along the carpet and then you touch a doorknob, that's due to electrical charges moving around. But on the moon uh, and in vacuum, charges will go onto these grains, these little grains, and they'll stick there. And then they can be, if you have really sharp points on the grains, or if you have little divots in the grains, you can get really weird charging interactions just from the grains being there on the surface. Um, and that makes it more complicated because we can't just consider gravity and sort of normal dynamics of things moving around. You also have to consider electrostatics and electrical interactions. Super complicated physics involved in, in this in this dirt on the moon. And Phil, you're trying to figure out a way to understand not only how it behaves, but to kind of sense it in, in, in action. Talk a little bit about this experiment and, and how you went about trying to test out this new hardware that, that's going to help figure out where these buggers are flying around. For about 20 years, we've been working, uh, I, I used to be at NASA and we were working on trying to write software that would predict how the rocket exhausts of a lunar, lunar landing or Martian landing or an asteroid rendezvous 
will blow that sand and that dust and the gravel off the surface. How, how much will it blow? How far will it go? How fast will it go? What angles will it go? And as we started to work on this, we, we realized, wow, this is really hard. Um, and we can't do this just from theory. So we need to do experiments. We started to do the experiments and then we ran into the problem that you cannot do the right experiments because granular physics cannot be made into a small scale experiment. When you, when you make everything small scale, the, that, um, the size of a sand grain shows up in too many equations. And so when you try to do the scaling equations to convert it into a small scale experiment, you, you solve the scaling equations and there's only one solution and it's full scale. So anytime you do a small scale experiment, you're throwing away some of the equations, but we don't know what we're throwing away because we've never solved the equations. So, so you don't know what you're throwing away when you scale the experiment. And, and so we really want to do full scale experiments. And that means we have to fire large rocket engines into a vacuum chamber while keeping it a vacuum inside, even as you're blowing rocket exhaust into it at high velocity. And it's full of dust. <laughs> and, yeah, and you can't be pumping the gas out because if you're pumping the gas out, you're pumping all that dust out and it's going to ruin the pumps. And people that own big vacuum chambers don't like that. And last of all, <laughs> for the, um, the real kicker is you've got to fit this onto an airplane so you can do it in a reduced gravity flight. So there's really no way to do the experiments that we need to do. And, and we've done every kind of experiment. We've done small scale indoors, then large scale outdoors. We really just need some data from a airless, low gravity environment with a big rocket. And, where <laughs> and there, is, that? <laughs> there is some usefulness in doing some small scale testing. And we'll, we continue to do some of that small scale testing and to try to understand a little bit more of the really basic physics and looking at some of the, the interactions. But in order to like really, like Phil said, in order to really understand it, we need to just go there. Yeah, so we adopted the philosophy that you have to have simulations. Experiments alone are not gonna do it. But uh, if you have a simulation, if you can write a computer model and get the equations right, then that simulation can be used for the small scale experiments to simulate those. And it can be used to, it can be used to simulate vacuum tests, low gravity tests, outdoor big rocket in the air tests. And if you can make that simulation match all the different types of experiments that we can do, then hopefully it'll extrapolate to the moon. But in the final analysis, we also need to get some actual data from the moon to just make sure that that simulation is really doing what we think it's going to do. So talk about how you're going to do that. You know, what's the hardware that you developed to get that data from the moon? And then how are you going to get it to the moon? <laughs> so um, one of the things we know about the way the dust blows off the moon is that it comes off in a thin, sh mostly in a thin sheet. Uh, it shoots up from the lunar lander at an angle of about one to three degrees above the local horizontal. And um, that, that thin sheet uh, shoots out at high velocity and then it can wrap all the way around the moon. But because it's a thin sheet, you can, we wanna distinguish the layers in the sheet, like how much of it shoots up at three degrees, how much of the dust is shooting at one degree, um, how much of the dust is shooting at higher angles. And so we need something that'll measure spatial resolution in the dust sheet. We did analysis of all the Apollo landing videos and we measured the shadows of the lunar module on top of the dust sheet. And we got as much information as we could that way. But we finally decided what we really need to do is shoot laser beams through that dust. 
and look at the light scattering off the laser beams so that we can measure how much dust it is at, is at every point along the beam from the top of the dust sheet all the way down to the bottom of the dust sheet. And so we wanted, we wanted something that has good spatial resolution, like a very narrow beam. And so that, that's why we got to looking at laser beams. Um, we could look at microwave beams or we could look at radio waves or you know any other method but those just don't have as much spatial resolution as a laser so we ended up deciding we're going to use laser beams rockets with laser beams on their heads <laughs> you sound a bit like a supervillain, phil you're shooting off rockets inside you're firing off laser beams but i know it's all for science <laughs> it's all for science <laughs> yeah we have uh, these really complicated physics equations we have to solve and usually we solve them with things like throwing around dirt and laser beams so mm-hmm. now you, you've had some success developing this laser beam system right um tell me a little bit about um, the test that yeah so we were able to so uh, before we went out there we've actually had a great team of students and um, some other uh, people working here at UCF who have helped us really design and build this prototype that we're using for testing out at Maston um, in uh, Maston Space Systems in Mojave um, and so unfortunately I wasn't able to go out and do the testing uh, but Phil was able to go out and integrate with the rocket and we're, we're doing it with Maston because they do these tethered tests where their rocket lifts up off the ground a little bit and it create and then they can sort of control the area under which they're they're uh, that's under the rocket um, and then we can use this laser and do some controlled testing and sort of a rapid sequence of tests over the week. Um, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to go out, but Phil was able to go out and work on this this time. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with UCF scientists Addie Dove and Phil Metzger about their efforts to study the behavior of moon dust. Our conversation continues after the break. Stay listening. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're continuing our conversation with UCF scientists Addie Dove and Phil Metzger about their experiment Ejecta Storm, a laser that seeks to uncover the mysteries of moon dust. Well, I, I want to like because I, I find it so interesting. Um, you know, I, I saw the pictures and I saw some of the videos of this and it really is this this rocket over this play box full of, of, of moon sand. Um, and I think the most interesting thing to me, and Phil, we've talked about this before because I've been to your office and I've seen all of your sand samples, um, but how do you simulate uh, the lunar regolith here on Earth? Uh, yeah, that's a really, uh, it's a surprisingly deep and difficult question. Um, <laughs> and there's been a lot of arguing through the years over this question. So, yep. um, so you, can, you can go out and you can crush up some rock and call it lunar simulant, but as Addie described, these particles are bizarre. The lunar soil is nothing like anything we can make on the Earth. If we wanted to make really high-fidelity lunar simulant with all the properties, it would, it would take so much work and such equipment and so much labor that it would be unaffordable. So, um, so we don't do that. <laughs> I mean, we, we can't put all of our money into making the simulated dirt. We got to put the money into the actual lasers and rockets too. So a- as a result, we've got to pick what properties of the simulant of the soil do we want to simulate? And uh, there was a meeting back in the 1990s at the Lunar Exploration Analysis Group for, for NASA that uh, 
they studied this issue and they came up with 33 properties of lunar soil that are of importance. And there's probably a lot more. And of those 33, most lunar simulants only simulate two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> they, they always say two and a half because the mineralogical properties are halfway simulated because they, they sort of have a couple of good minerals, but not the full complement of minerals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're basically just copying the particle size and the, um, the overall bulk mechanical behavior of the material. Um, so now we've got a lab at the University of Central Florida, which was founded by Dr. Dan Britt, uh, which is called the Exolith Lab. And the Exolith Lab makes very high fidelity lunar, asteroid, Martian, and Phobos simulants. Um, and they, uh, they do more than two and a half properties. Um, they try to work in other characteristics as well. But again, you have to be judicious. You have to pick mm-hmm. the important stuff. And then you have to know what you're not simulating so that you don't fool yourself when you're using the material. And different people are interested in different characteristics. And so if you're so if you're trying to study things, you maybe are interested in simulants that have, like Phil said, that have a few of these characteristics and you're not you don't care as much about mineralogy or something. You care mostly about uh, the physical shape or something like that, but mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a really complicated problem. And then, but if we're trying to do testing and really understand like how our system is working, we don't actually care as much about the exact properties for this test. For instance, we didn't care as much about the exact properties of, uh, the regolith of the soil. We mm-hmm. just wanted to see it blow and understand how our instrument performed. Right. Mm-hmm. So for this test, we actually didn't care quite as much about the exact properties of the simulant or of the soil. It would have been nice if we could have had some more of the spectral properties of the soil yeah. because we're using lasers of different wavelengths to see how much the light reflects at different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just can't get everything, you know, and yeah. also we needed enough simulant for a rocket, a full size rocket to blow it. And so it was going to be a, tons of material and we, and we couldn't afford to put too much f- fidelity into that many tons of material. Yeah, and some of those, uh, looking at the mineralogy and how the lasers react to the different wavelengths, like we can do some of those things in other tests just in the lab, right? Mm-hmm. So there are other ways to sort of combine right. experiments and, and get the full answer of what we're looking for until we send it to the moon. It, it, are you basing everything you know about lunar regolith just on what Apollo astronauts have brought back? Is that, is that really kind of the basis of, of knowledge for how you create these um, simulants here on Earth? For the simulants, yeah. So most of it is based on some observations that were actually taken on the lunar surface, but most of it is based on the samples that we brought back uh, from Apollo. That's fascinating. Um, because they they have they have rock they built they brought back rocks, but they also brought back soil sample uh, like soil column samples um, and some of the dusty stuff. Uh, and so we have sort of understanding of particles, uh, of the composition and of the size distribution and stuff like that. But right, the caveat to that is that all of the lunar landings were at specific locations. And it turns out a lot of the lunar surface is different than uh, where we landed at those times. Um, so some of, so a lot of the simulants for a long time have sort of reproduced those areas. Um, whereas a lot of the moon is sort of more what's called the highlands. So the, the whiter parts of the moon that we're used to seeing. Um, those areas haven't been as well simulated for a really long time. And so, you know, there's another whole part of the moon that we have very little data on, and that's the polar regions. Yeah. The polar regions are super important because we now know those contain ice, and that ice is probably probably contains a record of early solar system processes like comets 
comets coming in from the outer solar system and bombarding us. And so it contains super important scientific data and that ice is a potential resource for doing further science beyond. So we really want to go to those polar regions, Mm -hmm. but there are, uh, we have no experience in the polar regions and there's questions. Is the soil fluffier in those regions? The, The polar regions are not subjected to the same, temperature swing as other parts of the moon and we know that thermal cycling does cause granular materials to get more compacted Mm -hmm. um there are some indications that there may be a difference in the in the density state of the soil in those regions the ice we know there's ice mixed in the soil but we don't know how much how far how you know how variable what depths what form is the ice is it like snow is it like hail um, there's, there's a lot we don't know, and that's all going to affect the properties of the soil too. Um, and also I've got to imagine, uh, the soil is, is, or the regolith simulant is extremely complicated to make and, and come up with, but also testing here on earth, there's different gravities, right? How, how did you, uh, accommodate for, for that in this test? Uh, we noted it. <laughs> <laughs> Not moon um, gravity. <laughs> yeah. Scale gravity. Um, so yeah, so no, like, Phil mentioned really the only way to, to do tests in lunar gravity except for going uh, to the moon, for instance, um, is in things like reduced gravity airplane flights. There's some um, talk of doing them on like suborbital flights in the future. But again, that's a very small, that's a small environment mm-hmm. that you're able to test it in. So we can do some testing on reduced gravity airplane flights. Um, but these tests were done on the ground um, on Earth. So you have one G to account for. Uh, that affects a lot of things in terms of how the plume itself, so how the, the dust moves. Um, it, it affects how uh, not only initially, but also then subsequently, right? So it's trajectories that it takes. Um, it also affects sort of like how the, the dust clumps together and how it behaves on the surface. So um, again, it's it's understanding sort of what the limitations of your tests are, but, but using that to, to move to the next step. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phil, what is the next step? Well, let me mention, uh, if, we, if it's okay, I want to mention that Addie and I just got done working with a doctoral student. He's now Dr. Wesley Chambers. He worked in Addie's lab and he was doing reduced grab experiments with granular materials. Mm-hmm. So uh, he built a, a test chamber that you could drop in a drop tower and it would cause a puff of gas through a rocket nozzle into a granular material uh-huh. and we could study how the material reacted to that jet. Now it was very small scale and it was microgravity, not lunar gravity. But by doing these kinds of experiments all around different parts of the physics, we're trying to put together the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So those are very small scale experiments, but it's really fascinating to watch, to do it on the ground in one G and then do the drop test. And you see it in microgravity and maybe nothing moves through this jet of air in one G, but you get this giant puff in microgravity. So it's really um, interesting to see sort of the the scaling of how that happens and the shapes of the plumes and things Mm -hmm. like that. And even if you can't completely solve the physics from these experiments, one of the most important parts is just observing the phenomenology because these are phenomena that have never been described in the literature before. It's like before Darwin, there was a period in the 1700s of people traveling around the world collecting animals and collect you know collecting birds and fish and turtles and just describing them and this creates the database that theorists can later use to put together an explanation and Mm -hmm. so we're we're partly just in the phase of describing the phenomenology Mm -hmm. describing things 
I mean, and that is so cool. I sometimes I just remind myself, you know, this is so cool. We are seeing something that as far as I know, no human has ever seen before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just dirt blowing in a, in a, in a jet. <laughs> but if you look at it and realize, wow, this is a process of nature that we can't explain yet. And we mm-hmm. just saw it happen for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. With, with so many payloads heading to the lunar surface under, you know, various different programs like NASA's CLIPS and, you know, um, other uh, space agencies sending vehicles there. I mean, is this just going to be like a tidal wave of new knowledge for you coming in? Will you be watching these landings of these tiny rovers and, and tiny payloads, um, you know, as, as the decade of the 2020s rolls on? Um, of course. Yeah. yeah we're, <laughs> we're looking forward to this decade and the next few decades. I, I'm hoping that humanity is not going to turn back. I'm hoping that we're going to have more and more activity off the planet. I think the health of our planet depends on us. Um, it, it, it requires us to stop depending on our planet to do everything. Um, there are too many humans for this size of a planet, I think. And um, having a lot of humans is a good thing, but having all of our industrial activity um, depending on the same world where all the ecosystems and all the biology that we know in our solar system also live. I don't think that's good. Um, so I'm hoping this is the period where we're going to start learning how to unburden the earth from all of these activities that we're doing. And, and so I'm looking forward to a really exciting century and, and it's exciting that we get to see it happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all these different landings are going to be fascinating. Um, and obviously, we'd like to have our instrument on every one of them um, <laughs> so that you can really characterize it. There will be great data that comes back from all of them. Um, some of them will have instrumentation to study some of these effects. Some of them won't. Um, but it'll be fascinating because we'll have different scales of landers. So we've had a few different spacecraft go to the surface since Apollo. There were sort of larger spacecraft during Apollo. Um, but then the Chinese, the Chang'e landers have landed recently, and there's some cool data from those landings. Um, but that none of it has been instrumented. Um, and so there's going to be a, a range, hopefully, of different landers going from these different companies and from NASA uh, to the lunar surface. There's going to be human landers of different scales. Um, so it's going to be really fascinating to sort of uh, in the next few years see all these things start to happen and then really understand how it's all happening. And as Phil mentioned earlier, trying to characterize these things so that we can keep it sustainable and understand how we can continue landing at the same site in the future and things like that. Mm -hmm. We've been speaking with Addie Dove and Phil Metzger. They're scientists at the University of Central Florida studying far more than just blasting dirt, right? (laughs) Thank you both so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Brendan. We've got a cool video of that experiment on our website. Be sure to visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet to take a look. That's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit wmfe.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at A-W-T-Y space. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast or shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.